Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. All right, so we're continuing in our uh, study of ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church. And we've got several different kind of sideline topics. I say sideline topics, they, they affect us, but they're, they're not things we would necessarily or typically think about or reflect on. Um, tonight, we're going to look at the subject of church discipline. What does that mean? Uh, when and how should a church practice it? We're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, in not next week, the week after, we'll talk about some questions regarding leadership, uh, probably reflect, reflect a little bit on who deacons should be and who pastors and elders should be, uh, especially leading into the deacon election season uh, in the life of our church. So uh, we'll do that as we finish up this, this uh, calendar year. And then when we come back in the, in, the, uh, in the month of January, as we come back and gather in these, these times, we'll start with uh, the doctrine of last things, uh, eschatology, and kind of work through some of those questions uh, and some of those conversations. But tonight is uh, the church discipline. What, what is church discipline? Um, well, quite simply, church discipline is when one fellow Christian holds another fellow Christian accountable. That, that's the, the short and simple end of that. A lot of times you hear that terminology, church discipline, and you think about being excommunicated from the church, being put out of the church, not being able to participate in the Lord's Supper. And we're going to unpack those things. And, and that is certainly the, the part of church discipline that we all know about, right, or that we've thought about. And there are places in Scripture that, that indicate that. But just, just let me take some pressure off for a second. Primarily, church discipline doesn't happen publicly. If it happens publicly, it means that it's failed privately. In other words, good church discipline, in some senses, happens all the time. James chapter 5 tells us that we're to confess our sins to one another. What does that mean? It means that we're to confess our sins to one another. That there ought to be people in my life, inside the life of our church, that I can look at and say, I'm struggling in this area, and and I've not been right, and, and I need to confess this to to the Lord, but I need to confess it to somebody else. That measure of accountability, folks, that's church discipline. That's what what it looks like. It happens in Sunday school classes. It happens in discipleship groups. It it happens when our elders meet. It happens when I sit in front of our elders and and I experience a a church or a a senior pastor evaluation. That's an aspect of church discipline. It it, it happens in all sort of ways. So I want to take kind of the stigma off of it. We're going to talk about the the known public pieces of it as well. But take the stigma off of it. Church discipline should be happening a lot in healthy churches where there is regular interaction with one another regarding our flawed nature, confession, repentance, reconciliation, making things right. Jesus knew that. That's why he gave us uh, Matthew chapter 18. There are three passages of Scripture we'll reflect on here for just a few minutes. Matthew 18, verse 15 1 Corinthians 5, excuse me, and then uh, Hebrews 10. So let's look at Matthew 18. What what does Jesus say? He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if it does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. At Matthew 18.20 has been used over and over again to acknowledge that if two Christians are in the same room, Jesus is there. Well, let me just remind you, if you are a follower of Jesus with the Holy Spirit inside you, Jesus is where you are. Uh, his particular point in this instance is to say where the body of Christ is together following my principles and methods for church discipline or for correction in the life of the church, he promises that he's going to be with us in that process. Okay, that, that's the promise. So if we follow Jesus' methodology for dealing with issues that you may have or I may have, then guess what? As we follow Jesus' method, we can expect that Jesus is going to be there present in that, in that process, that we're not alone in that. Can I tell you where Jesus does not promise to be? He does not promise to be in, in an affirmative way or in an affirming way. He does not promise to be in the hallway or in the parking lot outside the church as some groups of people decide to gossip about some other groups of people rather than actually deal with the issue. That Jesus doesn't promise to be there. He promises to be there when we follow his prescribed method. What's his method? So if somebody has a problem with you or if you have a problem with somebody, you know what you're supposed to do? Go to that person. Go to that person. Say, hey, this is what's going on. I feel offended, or I think you've offended me, or maybe I think I've offended you. There's a coldness. There's, can, can, we, can we find out what's going on so that we can make that wrong, make it right? Now, brothers and sisters, is that an easy thing to do? I'm going to tell you it's not. I've had to do that in my own life. Uh, if, if, you, if you have even halfway a decent marriage, you do that in your, in your homes a lot. Uh, you know, where you acknowledge to your spouse that you've been wrong or where you acknowledge to your parents that you've been wrong or, or roommates that you've been wrong and you have to reconcile that. Jesus is talking about in the context of church. Saying if someone's wronged you or you've wronged somebody, the appropriate way to deal with that is to go to that person first. Amen. That's the starting point. It's not to go to somebody else. It's to go to that person first. And then if they don't listen, if they have no interest in repentance or reconciliation, then find somebody else that's a trusted advisor. It could be a pastor, it could be a deacon, it could be an elder, it could be a fellow discipleship group member, or Sunday school member, Sunday school teacher, somebody that knows you both. And go back to that person and say, here's the problem, here's what's going on, can we find a way to reconcile? Right? That's, that's, and then, you know, the, the hope is that that measure of accountability and, and kind of together support will bring that person to, to their senses and there will be a, a sense of reconciliation and trying to make things right. But, but what if they don't listen to the, the two or three? Well, then that's when there should be a public, in, in, it should be dealt with in a public manner. Bring it before the church. If they won't listen to the church, that will be treated as a tax collector or, or someone that we would avoid. That's the picture. Excommunication is a last resort, and it should only happen with someone who is not repentant. Okay? The, the issue of being put out of the church, and we'll see that, look if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because that's another text of Scripture. 
that deals with this same, same kind of concept. Situation is different, but same kind of concept. Paul puts it this way, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For although absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit, as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Several things to notice about this. Uh, It's pretty obvious this was a public, accepted sin in the life of the church like from a, a person who is unrepentant. It, this isn't one of those situations where the church is supposed to kind of uh, play FBI on people's paths, okay? Paul would go on to say, same, path, same, same book, chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. He's not telling us that, that we need to go after people's pasts. Uh, whether it's sexual immorality or drug addiction or anything else. That's not what he's telling us. He's talking about a person in the life of the church, a person welcomed in the life of the church, who is committing open, unrepentant immorality. And the church didn't do anything about it. They kind of ignored it. Paul said, hold on a second. This is not who we, the body of Christ, are to be. We're to, we're to be holy. We're to be, represent ourselves in a way that reflects the glory of Jesus, not that, that puts shame on it. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna ask, I'm asking you to put that person outside of the church. Turn him over to Satan. And, and the imagery there is, is when someone is outside the church, they're in the, they're in the world. They're, they're, they're for Satan's to do with as he wants. And sometimes... And I say this lovingly. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to someone caught up in sin is to let that sin take, it, take them as far as they need to go to hit rock bottom so that they can repent. And that's, that's what Paul is getting at here. He, he's, not, he's not talking about that person losing their salvation if, if they were ever saved to begin with. Right, He's talking about leaving them to experience the full force of the consequences of their sinful behavior. Why? Notice what he says. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That The desire in the case of this particular person was so that that individual might experience conviction, might experience contrition, might experience some kind of repentance, so that eventually they would come back and bring about repentance. And and if you read through 2 Corinthians, that happened. Uh, It it appears like this particular person came back with repentance, and he was restored back in the life of the church. Church discipline functioned as it ought to. Another passage of Scripture that deals with with church uh, discipline, at least uh, tangentially, we talked about this uh, several months back in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews explains the responsibility of the church. He said, uh, let us, chapter 10, verse 22, we're to draw near uh, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, so we're to hold a confession. That's one of the reasons we're working through Bible doctrines on Wednesday nights. One of the reasons why I preach expositionally. Because what I think you ought to believe and, and what, what you think you ought to believe ought to be grounded in, in the testimony of Scripture. Our, our, how I say things or how another preacher says things might be helpful or encouraging or it might not. But our confession is based on what Scripture teaches. So we're to hold on to that. And, and our church should be framed around what the Bible says. And then he goes on in verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. That means provoke one another to love and good works. And the only way to do that is to be around each other. You can't do that if you're disconnected. And so he goes on in verse 25 to write, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the, the expectations then are that the church body is to be functioning together. We're to be a part of God's people regularly engaged in the life of the church. So here are the blanks here. Uh, Matthew, Jesus defined the process. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 5, that is excommunication is the word there, the blank there. And then Hebrews 10, expectations of church members provides a basic framework for what we would do with regard to church discipline. So let me, uh, let me talk about the connection between membership and church discipline. Discipline was understood throughout much of church history to be dismissal from the Lord's Supper table. Let me explain that for just a second and then explain that broadly throughout church history and then bring that to bear on how we as Baptists function. So as we learned last week, some denominations hold that the Lord's Supper table or the Lord's Supper is sacramental, meaning that it is a, an experience of grace in and of itself. And for some denominations, Roman Catholicism being one of them, the Lord's table is part and parcel of what it means to be a Roman Catholic, meaning what it means to be a Christian. In other words, in order to guarantee that you're going to be in heaven and not in purgatory, or in heaven and not in hell, you have to partake of Mass. It's a regular practice in Roman Catholicism. So in church discipline, in practices throughout the Middle Ages, church discipline, whether it was Protestant or Catholic, was a removal from the Lord's table meaning that a person could not participate in the Lord's Supper. And because they couldn't participate in the Lord's Supper, they were considered outside the church. In Roman Catholicism, if you're outside the church, you're outside of salvation. That's their mindset. So in, in the Middle Ages, that's one of the reasons the Protestant Reformation was so uh, theologically divisive. It's also one of the reasons, historically, that Protestants and Catholics fought each other on the battlefield. Because... Catholics believed that Protestants who broke away from the church were outside the church. That means they were outside of Christ. That means they were going to hell when they died. And what's odd is they facilitated that process more quickly by killing them on the battlefield. That's kind of a strange way to, to pursue reconciliation. But Protestants held the same thing. And so there, there, was this, there was an intense recognition. You've got to be a part of the church to be a part of salvation. Well, as Baptists, we don't believe that the, the Lord's table is sacramental, meaning that it's a transfer of grace. We don't, we don't believe that, that you need to partake of the Lord's table in order to be a Christian. It's a reflection of or a commemoration of the gospel in which we've received. So for us as Baptists, the, the excommunication part of church discipline is excommunication from membership. It's not so much we, we say you can't be a part of the Lord's table, Although that would be included there, though we don't practice uh, the Lord's Supper weekly, 
it, it does carry with it the idea that it's removal from membership. Look at that second point. Discipline biblically is about removal from membership for the goal of repentance and restoration. So someone who is continuing to act in a way that is unrepentant and in discord with Scripture, if, if church discipline ever got to the process or the, the point in the process where they were dismissed from membership, um, that, that is kind of the final stage of what church discipline should look like in any church. And that's kind of our practice here as a Baptist church. Say, so why removal from membership? Well, look at the next point. Discipline is necessary because membership is to be the local church's affirmation of one's salvation experience. Now, let me clarify that. It is not my job to save anybody, okay? Only Jesus can save. In, in reality, I don't, I don't know um, if any of you truly know if any of you are converted. That's between you and God, Okay? But the local church, this local body, is responsible to be able to say, our members are Christians. As best as we can tell, the members at Wilkesboro Baptist Church have professed a public acceptance of Jesus as Lord and Savior, believe the right things about Jesus, have followed Jesus in obedience through the waters of baptism, and are living as Christ followers. All right? That's what membership is supposed to testify to, all right? Church members are supposed to be those who have a faith relationship with Jesus and are living as Christ followers. That's why, that's why church discipline is important because if we have a member of our congregation that's living in discord with Christ's teaching, that's living in unrepentant sin, as we read other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, like the book of 1 John, that is inconsistent with the life of a Christian. It doesn't mean a Christian can't sin. That's not what I'm talking about. But the Bible is pretty clear that continual, unrepentant sin is not a sign of someone being a follower of Jesus. It's a sign of someone not being a follower of Jesus. Okay? And so if the church says our members are followers of Jesus, that's our public affirmation. Wilkesboro Baptist Church is public affirmation of your, or the affirmation of your salvation experience. It's not saying you're saved, it doesn't make you saved, but it's kind of our flag that says, okay, Edward Mays, my friend, church member, discipleship group member, he's a member at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, he's a follower of Jesus. That's really what our testimony should be in the world. If you're a member at a church, that should affirm that that church holds that you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where church discipline becomes necessary. Because what happens when someone's lived experience publicly in the world is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches? And you have a whole lot of hypocritical people who claim to be church members, thereby also claim to be Christians, but their lives are inconsistent with their verbal testimony. And that's where discipline comes in. Uh, A couple of things to observe before we look at our takeaways. In our own church history, discipline, confession, and reconciliation uh, did take place in our church business meetings. Uh, One of the things, I've not read all the history 
at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Many before have, have put that history together or compiled it. Robert Triplett did some significant work in kind of tracking our history and reflecting on the minutes that we have. One of the things Pastor Tad did when he came about 15 years ago is he read through literally all the business meetings at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. And I've read through a few of them. Uh, and, and here's the thing. Back in the day, in the early 1900s, church discipline happened regularly in the business sessions at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. If someone was guilty of a, of a public sin uh, and, and they, they had not dealt with that in some real clear way privately, whether it was a pastor or whether it was a church member going to that person, then there were times where people were brought forward at the church business session or business meeting to be disciplined publicly by the church or to be removed from membership. That happened in our church's history. That happened typically in Baptist churches throughout the 17 and 1800s. Church discipline was something that, that took place for things like uh, one particular instance in the South, a, a business owner selling playing cards. He was brought before the church, and he, he tried to tell the church, he said, he said listen, uh, nobody came to me privately. And, and dealt with the address this privately. So, so the process, the Matthew 18 process, was not, was not followed. And the church did not consider that to be, to be a valid argument from him because it was a public sin. Like, like he was selling the playing cards in public in, in his place of business. And that, that seems a little ludicrous uh, to us today. Nevertheless, church discipline is an important practice matters. Uh, the practice today, I would say discipline happens all the time. The official process of discipline at our church uh, is overseen by our body of elders. So if there's a specific issue of church discipline that needs to be addressed at the level of even come close to bringing it before the church, uh, it would be the elders that are at least responsible for that process. Say, Pastor, why are we talking about this? Well, I, I, uh, I planned to talk about this several weeks ago, but I had a call from a, a pastor friend of mine today, and he's got quite a mess going on in, in his congregation of believers. There are some things happening where people are acting publicly in complete discord with what the church, their church covenant says that they're supposed to do. And some people got mad because he was just trying to uphold the church covenant. What, what the church said, this is who we're going to be, some people in the church didn't want to act that way. They didn't want to do that. And he said, well, this person can't be a member of the church if they're doing this public sin. And, uh, and then some other folks got mad about it, and guess what they've done? They've gone on the, one of the greatest tools of the devil, Facebook, and they have complained, excuse me, if you like Facebook, God bless you. Um, if some, of us, some of us have to work on Facebook. My wife has to with her job. And, and I, I, anyway, I, sorry, I'm not going to go any further with, with that. But uh, in that particular church context, all they've done is complain on Facebook. And they've, they've badmouthed the church, they've badmouthed the pastor. So they've become public gossipers along with private, like, sinners and acting in just discord. And so he called me this afternoon, asked for some advice and wisdom and, and prayers. And, and so I prayed with him and we talked together. Uh, let, me, let me give some practical clarifications before we look at this, at this list of takeaways. A couple of things that we try to, try to follow, they're not necessarily hard and fast rules. But some things we try to follow. One is, is very simply that the, when church discipline has to be public, it should be public because the sin itself was public. 
And one of the ways that, that Pastor uh, Greg Mathis at Mud Creek talked about it with us, that the discipline should be as public as the sin. So if the sin is in public, then, then the discipline needs to be at some level in public. Um, and, and there should be a process for that. Uh, that also leads us to remember that most discipline happens in private. I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've talked with church members and we've had to talk about issues of, of, um, of uh, disagreement. We've had to talk about issues of sin. And guess what? There's been a repentance. There's been a confession. There's been a submission to scriptural authority. There's been a following of leadership. And guess what? That, that, that issue, you'll never know about it. I'll never preach on it. And you'll never, you'll never know the people that have come and that we've talked about these issues in my office or, or in their home. You'll never know that because that church discipline stayed private. Because the sin was addressed directly or the issue was addressed directly. And guess what? It was repentance and reconciliation. Uh, the times when it needs to become public are when it is either a public sin, a very public sin, or when it is a sin that has... Uh, that has presented itself in a way that the church has to address. And so what is our process? Let me read to you what we have put in our church bylaws under church discipline. Uh, The elders may recommend to the congregation the removal of any member. By the way, this is the bylaws that passed last year. The elders may recommend to the congregation the removal of any member if for a period of one year that member has not participated in any manner of the life, support, worship, or ministry of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Such representation is not to be presented to, to the church unless diligent efforts have been made to restore the member to fellowship uh, with Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Upon such recommendation, the congregation and member concerned shall be notified in writing of the recommendation and pending action not less than 10 days preceding such congregational meeting and a three-fourths majority of those voting shall be required for the removal of a member under this section. Termination of membership through the process of church discipline is a last resort. Any member consistently neglectful of his or her duties or guilty of conduct by which the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be dishonored and so opposing the welfare of Wilkesboro Baptist Church and or rendering a doubtful profession, rendering doubtful a profession of faith shall be subject to the admonition of the elders and discipline of the church According to the instructions of our Lord in Matthew 18 and the example of Scripture, church discipline then should ordinarily be contemplated after individual private admonition has failed. Church discipline can include admonition by elders or congregation, deposition from office, um, excommunication. The elders will develop and maintain an elder manual in which we will uh, functionally develop church discipline as a like a guide or a process for church discipline so that's what we've written in our in our bylaws uh, and thankfully we have not had to practice this a whole lot in the life of the church at least the formal elements of that but but here's one of the reasons I'm bringing this up membership at a local congregation matters okay so we're saying, that every person who's a member at Wilkesboro Baptist Church has made a profession of faith and is following Jesus, or at least made a profession of faith. Here's, here's part of the problem with that, and I'm going I'm to confess to you something that probably every Baptist church pastor could confess. We have a lot of church members that we don't know where they are. We don't know who they are. We don't know what's going on in their lives. 
At some point in the past, decades ago, a decade ago, eight years ago, whatever, they came and decided they wanted to be a part of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Uh, and they became a part of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, and then we haven't heard or seen from them since. When, uh, let me just make some qualifications here. When your elders, which are five of us, and Marsh and Steve have been here since the 80s, I've been here for eight years, Tad 15, Vince 5. When we don't know somebody that's on our church prayer list to pray for our church membership list, that's a problem. It means that person's disconnected from the life of the church. When Barbara Adams, who served here as our church uh, secretary 35 years, doesn't know who that person is, I don't know. That, that's, that's a problem. That means that we, as a church, would find it very difficult to affirm that person's testimony of conversion if they asked us to because we don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. And so in the summer, we sent a letter to those church members who were disconnected, not attending, not attending the church, uh, and we sent a letter simply asking them to let us know where they were, what was going on in their lives. I've got a copy of that letter. Uh, I'm happy to make you a copy of that letter so you'll know what we sent to folks. It was very written very kindly. It was written encouragingly. It was written from the standpoint of Hebrews chapter 10. We're just simply asking, fo- asking folks to participate in the life of our church. Um, that, that, that's all it was, and let us know that. And some folks, and you've seen this if you've been in our member meetings, some folks have responded back and said, I'm attending another church. And guess what? That, that, amen. And you, that's wonderful. We want you to be a part of a church. And so we've dismissed them from membership, not based on discipline, but based on their request. Uh, and then other folks have written back to us and said, ah, I'm not sure I want to do that yet. I'm not sure where I am. Some folks we realize are aging and have essentially become shut-ins. Our goal is not to disfellowship every single person who hasn't been our church in over a year. We're not going to do any of that stuff. We're not going to create more problems than, 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 uh, than we, we, we could cause. But, but here's why I'm telling you this. Because it is important that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you embrace the body of believers that Jesus died for. It's, it's, just, it, it's important. It doesn't mean you have to be here 52 Sundays a year. You know, hardly any of us can be. But it does mean that there's got to be a regular commitment as a part of a church member to express that my faith in Jesus is lived out by my gathering with the rest of the body of believers in worship and in discipleship and in Sunday school classes and in other practices and ministry areas. So, okay, that's, that's kind of my little sermonette there. Let me, let me look at the takeaways so we can make sense of this. What do we do with this? Theological takeaway, because church membership is to be the local church's affirmation of conversion, holding church membership accountable serves as a valuable witness of Christ's saving work. Accountability matters. What you allow is what you get. That's true on a football field with a football team. That's true in any other practice in life. What you allow is, is, is what you're going to get. And so part of what that looks like in the life of our church is there should be measures of relational accountability that happen in the life of the church. Could be uh, our elders are doing that. Our deacons hold each other accountable. Our, our, um, our staff holds each other accountable. Our discipleship groups hold each other accountable. There's a fair amount of this going on in discipleship groups as we speak. Our Bible study groups hold one another accountable. That is healthy. 
because it's our job to make sure that you and I act as if we're followers of Jesus. And that's the theological takeaway. Here's the worship takeaway. Reconciliation and repentance are to be regular aspects of worship preparation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? This is worth reading. Matthew 5.23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. That's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as he's dealing with the subject of anger. So, um, I'm going to meddle just a minute, okay? So if you don't like me meddling... That's okay. You can close your ears, turn them off, not listen. If you don't, if you think I'm probably going to meddle with somebody else, then you can listen and you can you can kind of uh, you know enjoy from afar. Some people go to church and they're ornery and angry the whole time that they're there. Okay. Some people go to church with a grudge against somebody else in the church. They're mad at this person, or they're mad at that person. They're mad at their neighbor. They're mad at the pastor. They're mad at the deacon. I'm going to tell you, sometimes pastors do the same thing. Come to church, and we're mad at people. Or we're mad at usually. With me, it's family, but that's, that's another story. As, you know, not because being a husband and being a father, you know, there's tension and interaction. I, I can't tell you the number of times. I, I wish I could say this wasn't true. I can't tell you the number of times that I have had to spend time in my office and sometimes time on the phone with my wife before I step in the pulpit to preach because I've been wrong about something. And I've acted wrong. I don't just mean like wrong in an argument. I've acted wrong. So here's, don't say amen to that, Curtis. (laughs) Heaven, help us all. Maybe say, oh, me. I hope not. Let that not be so. Amen means so be it. That's why. So, uh, but anyway, here's, here's the point. If we're going to worship God faithfully, we can't do that if we have all against our brothers in the room. There are, a, I'm going to, Vince knows this. I've been a part of Baptist churches my whole life, and I've been in some Baptist churches, folks, where there are not a lot of real worshipers. This isn't one of those churches. I'm, I'm going to tell you that. There may be some of us here that struggle with this, but this is not one of those. But I've been at some places where there aren't people who are worshiping. And you know why they're not worshiping well? Because they're angry at somebody else. They're holding a grudge, they're mad, and they're going out and they're gossiping about that person when church is over. No wonder there's no spirit of worship in the place. There's sin. And here's what Jesus said very clearly. He said, if you are at church, he's, he's talking in the Old Testament language of offering a sacrifice at temple, but the same principle applies in the life of the church. If you realize there's something wrong between me and a brother or me and a sister, let's go make that right before we try to worship God. A regular part of our worship preparation ought to be reconciliation uh, and ought to be uh, kind of making those things right. Why is that the case? Folks, God loves to forgive. He just does. I was talking to my friend this afternoon, and he was kind of asking, okay, how far do I track this stuff out? I mean, how far do we seek it out? Because sometimes there's there's a never ending, never ending set of steps. I mean, if 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 we wanted to, as pastors and elders, we could track down sin, 
and that would be all we'd do. And I'm talking about seek it out to, to deal with accountability and discipline and that kind of thing. That'd be all we'd do. And there are times that is appropriate and necessary. But I, I was telling him, and I think this is kind of the, the approach that we as a church ought to balance between a, a legalism and love, if you want to say it that way. Jesus, when he sought us out, do you realize he doesn't seek us out to berate us? He doesn't chase us down to yell at us. He pursues us to bring us back in a relationship with himself and to forgive us. And so, why does God love reconciliation and repentance? Why does God love it when you forgive somebody? Because that's exactly how Jesus treats us. And so I think our bent as church members, our bent as elders, our bent as a church, has got to be the pursuit of forgiveness and reconciliation. That doesn't mean that we ignore public, open, unrepentant sin. We can't do that. Jesus taught us a process. Here's what you got to do. Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians 5. Hey, this ought not be in the life of the church. And so if there's open, rebellious, unrepentant sin, we can't ignore it. If we ignore it, then we're, we're, we're not honoring the holiness that God expects the church to operate with. But we ought also not to have this uh, kind of holy legalistic lean like the Pharisees did where, bless God, we're just going to seek out all the sin we can seek out and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make those sinners right. That's not the way life works. And that's not the way God wants us to be. He wants us to practice reconciliation and forgiveness. That has a very practical aspect to church discipline. And I, I could call it counsel. I could call it, I mean, I, I could tell you stories of sitting down with husbands and wives where, you know, to be quite honest with you, the, the, um, the husband still thinks he's right and the wife still thinks she's right and both of them are, are not, you know, both of them can't be right. And so, so what do we do? Do we go right into church discipline? They're neither one listening to us and I don't know that that's the right thing to do. I think the right thing to do is to try to, try to, Patiently work through those issues. Patiently work through those sin challenges. Patiently help people to understand that 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 level of either trauma or difficulty or catastrophe, bring them to a point where they they can face their sinfulness so that they can repent and bring about reconciliation. Sometimes it takes time. It doesn't happen very quickly. And so realistically, and hopefully, we won't have a lot of these public there won't be a lot of public necessity to bring a lot of people up in the life of the church for public church discipline. I'll tell you where you can help us, though, before we do the last two takeaways. Here's where you can help us. Maybe you know some of those folks that are disconnected from the life of the church. One of the things you could do is you could go to them and say, I missed you, miss seeing you. There might be a reason they're not coming. They might not be coming because they've, they've got ill health and sickness. And we've got a lot of folks in the life of our church that since COVID have not returned. And, and, and some of the reasons they've not returned have nothing to do with anger, or disfellowship, or lack of desire for membership. Some of it's a health issue, a legitimate real health issue. Well, guess what? If we don't know that, we need to know that. Because our elders and our deacons and our staff want to minister to those who are struggling health-wise. You may know somebody like that. And so if you reach out to some of those folks and say, hey, miss seeing you, is everything okay? We pray for you. 
Some folks just need the opportunity to make things right. That's one way you can help us. Let me give you the evangelistic takeaway. A church with many disconnected, non-attending members does not witness to the efficacy of the gospel well. I say that lovingly, but I, I, I think that is absolutely truthful. Here's why. And I included the whole paragraph here. The gospel is life-altering. It is an eternity-changing message. Salvation through Christ is to be life-altering, a life-altering, eternity-changing event in one's life. That's what it's to be, right? It is to, it is, it, you're on one path and you're, you, you switch directions. You were going one way and now you're going a different way. There's to be a change. If there is no change, spiritual, there is no change, spiritual alteration is witnessed in one's life and through his or her membership then the testimony of the church is damaged. So here's, here's what I mean by that. So let's say a person comes and they want to be baptized, and we do baptize them, and they, they say, I want to be a member of the church, and they show up for three weeks, and then they go away, and then they start living like the devil uh, during the week. You know what they're saying? They're saying nothing real happened. That's what they're saying. That's what their life is witnessing to. So, do you know why I, I hear this a bunch? I've got, I've got a friend of mine I talk with regularly. He has not come to know Jesus yet because he does not want to be like the hypocrites that he saw who he said, they said they came to know Jesus and nothing happened in their lives. So, the reason he has avoided following Jesus, he doesn't want to be like hypocrite, the hypocrites. A church... When churches are full of those disconnected members who say one thing at some point in their past but live a completely different way the rest of their lives or for a long period of their lives, here's what, here's what they're saying. They're saying there's nothing to the gospel. That's not true, obviously. Thank heavens for you and me it's not true that the gospel is efficacious. It does change our hearts and lives. But then what they got wasn't that. Or it wasn't real, or there wasn't real repentance. Or, or that person got saved because his boyfriend, her boyfriend or girlfriend wanted, wanted that to happen. The person got saved, got saved, made a decision because that was the last straw. That was the last thing. If they did that, they might, they might save their marriage. And it wasn't real. I've seen that more times. I, w- I wish I'd say I've never seen that, but I've seen that. You've seen that too. And so, there's, so a week later, 10 days later, two hours later, there's nothing, nothing real that happened in that moment. It just wasn't. They, they, their motives were wrong. They didn't really respond to the gospel. Well, if, if they remain as publicly affirmed church members of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, what are they saying? They're saying the gospel isn't real. that's the message that it's proclaiming. So, as I say that to say, as we continue to seek out those who are disconnected from the life of our church, there might come a time, there will come a time, I I would venture a guess, in the life of our church at our member meetings, that some of those people that we've sent letters to and that we've called and that we've reached out to and and that we either can't find or we do find and they have no interest in coming back to our church, that we we would follow our prescribed method of church discipline in our church bylaws, and we'd say to them, hey, you know, you haven't desired to come back. 
we're trying to make things right. They don't desire to come back. Hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to dismiss you from church membership. Now, let me clarify one thing before we get to the last takeaway. That does not mean that person is lost. Okay? Whether they're a member at Wilkesboro Baptist Church or not has no bearing on their soul's condition. We can't dismiss someone from salvation. We're not trying to. All right? But if I'm responsible for their souls, and that's what Hebrews 13, 17 says, that the elders and pastors and leaders of the church are responsible to shepherd the souls of those who are in their charge. If I'm responsible for their souls, and we're responsible to say this person is a follower of Jesus living as a Christian, then, then there ought to be some aspect of their lifestyle that reflects that they're a follower of Jesus and a Christian. And if they're not, then we ought not attest to that publicly. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be harsh or mean, and we're not going to be. We're going to be really, really patient. We have been really, really patient. I mean, we sent a letter out in July, and we've not entered into any kind of public church discipline with any of those that, that did not respond back to us. We're still kind of following out some processes to find out who those folks are and where they are. Here's the last thing. This is for all of us. It is our obligation as the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, to take responsibility for offenses and being offended in the pursuit of reconciliation, repentance, and forgiveness. Here's the short end of what that means. If you've been offended by somebody, go make it right. If you find out you've offended somebody, go make it right. Don't wait on somebody to come inform you that, you're, that, that you've offended them. Now, sometimes you may not have no option. You may, know, you may not know you've offended somebody. I've done that. I, I've said things. I've done things. As a pastor, I have a very public job and responsibility, and I wish I could say all my words are perfect, and I wish I could say all the tone in which I say things is right. I wish I could say that. I can't say that. I, 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 there have been times I've offended people by what I've said or by how I've acted or by how I've not been considerate. And, and I had no idea, no clue whatsoever that I had offended somebody. Uh, I, I would say that to all of you in the room. If, if I've done that with you, one, either just forgive me in the spirit of tonight's talk or come talk to me about it and I promise I'll confess because I, I don't desire to be offensive in any, man, any manner or way. That's not my bent. That's not what I want to do. I want to I be reconciled with others. But the point is this. If you've offended or been offended, take responsibility. Take ownership and go reconcile. Pursue reconciliation. And if you go to somebody and they don't want to hear anything of it, and you say, what do I do? Well, come back and talk to me. Or talk to one of your other elders. And I promise you, we'll offer whatever counsel we can be, or we may be that second or third person that goes with you to pursue reconciliation. Why do we want to do that? Well, we want to do that because the gospel is efficacious, folks. It does change people's lives. It makes us different. We're not the same people we were before Christ. We're different people. Can I say amen? Can you say amen? We're not the same. We're changed. So guess what? The change of the gospel ought to work itself out in our lives day by day, week by week, month by month, whether it's in our family lives or whether it's in our church lives, it ought to work itself out that way. Um, and here's a cool promise. When we do this, Jesus says, I will be with you 
in the midst of the pursuit of repentance and reconciliation. In other words, he will facilitate. Because the only one that can change a heart is Jesus. The only one that can change a life is Jesus. Can, I say, can we say amen? Uh, seriously, open door. If I've bothered or offended any one of you at any time as your pastor, please come let me know. Um, if someone else has, go make that right. Pursue reconciliation. Seek out right relationships. That's just what, that's just what God expects us to do. Um, that doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. I, 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 we're not going to agree on everything. Okay? Church discipline isn't where the leaders in the church are right on everything or this person's right on everything. That's not what church discipline is. Church discipline is right attitudes and right relationships and a willingness to exist in the body of believers even if I disagree with my brother Vince, but we're not going to be at odds with each other. I'm not going to go talk about him behind his back. He's not going to talk about me behind my back. We might not see eye to eye, but we're not going to be offended by one another. We're not going to offend one another. We're not going to go take that out and talk about my issues with him or he's not going to talk about his issues with me with somebody else where it can't pursue any kind of direction or any kind of end. So anyway, if you need some help with something, if you've got something going on where, where they're you're not sure how to approach the next step, again, make an appointment with me. I'll, I'll try to help you walk through that. I promise you, though, one of the best things you can do is read through those passages of Scripture, Matthew 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Hebrews 10. And, and if that doesn't give you clarity how to handle it and you need some help further, I'm happy to talk with you. Any of our elders would be. But Jesus gives us a model and a method to pursue reconciliation. To that, we ought to say thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.